and welcome to this BMJ podcast with me, Navjot Lada, Head of Scholarly Comment at the BMJ. Today we're talking about resilience and how health systems can withstand shocks to the system. The topic of resilience has been discussed and poured over in a lot of the analysis in the wake of the Ebola outbreak, and so I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Margaret Crook, Associate Professor of Global Health at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and one of the authors of a recently published analysis article on building resilient health systems. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Just to start with, why don't you tell us a bit about how you came to be involved in this topic? Yes, thank you, Navjoid. Delighted to be with you. Uh, So the concept of resilience uh, in the health system is uh, an idea that uh, we have been exploring jointly with uh, colleagues in Liberia for the last several years uh, under the auspices of of, uh, a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, Rockefeller actually is one of the uh, thought leaders in the area of resilience, um, applying the notion of resilience, which really means to you know, be able to adapt in response to crisis uh, in you know, cities, in ecologies, uh, with extreme weather, these sorts of areas uh, for quite some time. And actually, the concept of resilience has a long history um, around uh, different um, uh, areas of, of, of work, including agriculture and some of the others, but not so much in health systems. So in the past couple of years, we've been trying to understand what does it mean for a health system like Liberia's to face an incredibly uh, uh, dangerous and serious uh, shock like Ebola, And what would success look like uh, in terms of being able to withstand that shock and be able to provide core services? Uh, So it's really been the last couple of years of research uh, with colleagues in Liberia, with the Ministry of Health uh, and uh, and with Rockefeller Foundation to try to put some flesh on, on this concept of health system resilience. And that's what you go into in the article, um, this sort of exploring some of those ideas. So let's start with with one of those, which is what are the features of a resilient health system? Perhaps you could talk us through that. Sure. So we have uh, uh, scanned the uh, um, literature outside of health for guidance on how to think about resilience, uh, a concept that actually has been well defined in other fields. And what we came up with for the health system is that resilience really speaks to the ability of institutions and health actors and people uh, to prepare for and respond to crisis. That's that's point one. Um, the second point is that not only do you need to respond to the shock that hits you, but also you've got to maintain core functions. A health system is for many, many other uh, uh, people and many other uh, uh, diseases. Uh, even when there's an Ebola outbreak, people are still having babies and people still need emergency treatment. So can that system maintain core functions? And then finally, the, a resilient health system does need to be able to learn and change and reorganize if needed. Okay, so in that work that you've done, I mean, there's been a lot of debate about whether resilience is a useful concept, whether it brings anything of value to um, the healthcare debate. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I think that uh, we should be uh, generally sceptical of brand new concepts that come into a very crowded field. Health systems has been well discussed, and variously defined, and certainly extensively measured in the last 20 years or so. Uh, so a new term or a new uh, framing, I think, uh, you know, brings about some some pushback and, and certainly, uh, uh, I think, careful review. 
Um, I do think there are a few areas uh, of health systems that resilience highlights in a way that current frameworks and current ways of thinking do not. And one of the big ones for me uh, is that um, it really emphasizes the dynamic capacity of the health system. Uh, and what I mean by that is up until, I think, you know, recent thinking and resilience, we've thought about health systems in a very cross-sectional manner. I think we think of them as static entities. They need bricks. They need health workers. They need equipment and drugs. And I think there is a sense that, you know, once you have that in place, you know, something will happen. Good, good things will occur. People will, will, uh, will get good care and outcomes will follow. Uh, and then when crisis hits, we are surprised when these static health systems don't spring to action. But yet we haven't really embedded the concept of a dynamic response, learning uh, with uh, challenges, uh, responsiveness and adaptation. Those are not embedded in our current thinking about health systems. And that's not an issue just in low income countries. I think we struggle with this uh, uh, rigidity uh, and, and sort of a sclerotic approach to, to the health system in high income countries, too, where it's very difficult to to change protocols on the fly or adapt operations when crisis hits. So uh, so think this idea of dynamism is one real contribution of, uh, of resilience to the health system dialogue globally. I think the other one is that when we think about resilient health systems, I think it actually does uh, is a bridge in a way between the many uh, uh, paradigms out there. I was about to say competing paradigms. I don't know that they're all competing, but they're certainly not coherent. Uh, of what a health system should be. You know, on the one hand, we have the, the the group of folks, and I'm certainly in that, that supports the idea of, you know, universal health coverage as a key uh, purpose of health systems, a key uh, 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 a success feature of health systems. Uh, there are, uh, there's the, the WHO health systems framework. There is uh, a community that's working on preparedness, community that's working on sustainable development goals. Those are all the, the concepts swirling around uh, healthcare and health systems globally right now. I think resilience helps to build some, some links between those concepts. For example, emphasizing that high quality healthcare services, that responsiveness to populations, uh, that uh, ability to treat your health workers well and have enough of them and make sure they're well trained. All of those pieces are fundamental to resilience. They're fundamental to universal health coverage. Uh, and they're certainly fundamental to achievement of the sustainable development goals. So bridging what can sometimes be quite disparate agendas is quite an important contribution by the sound of things. Um, can I ask you a bit about one of the things you mentioned in the paper is where resilience or building resilience can contribute to giving people people the power to hold health systems um, to account and be more accountable. How do you think it offers that? This is probably one of the biggest um, uh, insights that we have from our research in Liberia, where over the past couple of years, we have been interviewing health system actors and community leaders, uh, providers, a ministry of health officials, uh, external funders, and really hearing loud and clear that there was a, a very large divide between how the population perceived the, the Ebola crisis and how the health system perceived it. And, uh, and that sense among the population of deep distrust of the health system, uh, lack of confidence, lack of trust, and certainly a, a, an immediate, almost a reflexive resistance, therefore, to anything that the ministry or donors or international agencies would propose to the population. Um, 
uh, and and what that resulted in is I think something we all saw. We saw this in the news where people would um, avoid uh, health care. They would hide people with, with illness. Or if they did come to some health centers on the other side, the health workers were extremely anxious and sometimes uh, people were dying outside the gates of hospitals. I think we saw some harrowing pictures of that. So, so a real disconnect between the population and the health system. And the notion of resilience, though, embeds the, 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 the centrality of uh, connectedness uh, between populations and health systems. And I think this has been a missing link in health systems thinking for a very long time, where the tendency is for us to think of health systems as a supply side concern. We, the experts, can figure out what people need. We will provide it and people will be grateful and they will come. And I think our research, not just in resilience, but more broadly in health systems utilization, health system quality and preferences, shows that actually people are, are perfectly capable of ignoring the clinic next door if they don't think it's worthy. Uh, I think they're perfectly capable of making their own judgment on whether the Ministry of Health message is relevant to them. And until we, we shift our orientation in health system to put the user at the center and the user as, as, a, as a, a, a key judge, frankly, of, uh, of health system effectiveness, uh, we're going to be missing the boat. Mm-hmm. So this concept of dynamism doesn't just mean in response to the health shocks, if you like, but also to to the needs and the views of the population as well. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, uh, that's, that's an excellent extension. The idea that people's needs need to be known, number one. And number two, those needs are going to change. We see in many countries already that uh, uh, as soon as people get uh, their hands on a cell phone, and uh, as women get more educated, their demands for services, both the content of those services, the quality of those services, the way that they're treated in the health system, rises dramatically. And until the system understands that, and unless the system understands what people value, um, there will be a huge mismatch between what's actually being provided and what people are willing to use. Yeah, and that development can often happen in a way that... um doesn't follow the sort of same patterns as, say, I might be used to in a UK health system or in a US health system and that sort of thing. So I suppose there's an argument as well not to just, if you're an outside actor, certainly not to sort of impose a rigid way of thinking on that as well. Yeah, I think that's right. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think as, uh, as funders, uh, global funders in particular, uh, invest in health systems, there often is this temptation. I've certainly seen it. We've evaluated uh, health programs funded by our own government here in the U.S. Uh, that were taking place in other countries where the solution seems to have been made in Washington. And, and that certainly is not uh, would be opposite to, to the concept we just spoke about of responsiveness to the population. Okay, so um, why don't you tell us a bit more about your experience in um, Liberia then and how um, the sort of the framework that you describe in the paper, how you could apply that to to what you saw there? Yeah, so um, Liberia, I think, is a is an excellent example of, of, of many things. But one of those is actually learning from failure. Uh, the idea that Liberia tried uh, a number of tactics uh, to uh, to control its its raging epidemic, and particularly as cases mounted, uh, and especially in Monrovia, the capital city, a number of efforts uh, were tried. They clearly failed. They were adapted, and it took a long time to get to the right answer. I think part of the point of this framework uh, and the index that we're proposing also is to shorten that time frame for learning. Um, but in Liberia specifically, 
there was a, almost an um, instant sort of health system shutdown. You know, when I met with uh, the director of the uh, referral hospital, the sole referral hospital in the country, he described to me in stark terms the fear really the terror among his staff in opening their doors to to potentially an infected population because the staff themselves didn't have the means or knowledge to protect themselves. And there was a case of Ebola and a pregnant woman who, um, who delivered her baby. Unfortunately, the baby died. She later died. They only learned a few days later that she had had Ebola. And uh, because of that inadequate precautions, uh, infected a number of health staff who then uh, died. So this sort of um, nightmare scenario um, led him to close the doors to, to, the, to the hospital. And that spurred further fury and distress from the population. But you can see, you know, good reasons uh, in some ways on both sides. But there's just no preparation and no, no, no contingency plan for what would happen if an epidemic like this hit. So that was that was an error in a way, but understandable. Um, but then there were other errors uh, where, um, for example, the government put out a communique saying Ebola kills to try to focus people's attention on the severity of this disease. Unfortunately, what that did, though, uh, in retrospect is clear, is actually made people fatalistic and it made people very much avoid reporting. Their point, their thinking was, if it kills, what's the difference? I might as well die at home where I'm surrounded by my family. And of course, that means that, you know, dead bodies are incredibly infectious. So we saw these cases of hidden um, corpses in, in villages. So again, the communication was off. There was no effort uh, initially to understand how to communicate. And later on, this this uh, this improved, both in terms of integrating. I think one of the big break breakthroughs in Liberia was that communities were incredibly restive. They needed to do something about this. They perceived the government as not doing enough. Um, we're doing the wrong thing. And so I think one, one important innovation that emerged from Liberia was uh, a community response to the epidemic where uh, community leaders were directly became, were hired to be directly engaged in surveillance and they were trusted. They came house to house and tested people's temperatures and asked about symptoms uh, and were able to report new cases. And so this active case finding uh, developed over time in partnership with the community. Uh, and this made all the difference. Uh, community leaders got behind this now and were themselves on trucks, you know, making announcements to their communities. And that that really resulted in a, a very different level of, uh, of response. So so I think there are a few features that this, um, uh, in a way, illustrates of resistance. Um, you know, in our paper, we talk about the fact that the system has to be adaptive. Um, it has to be able to self-regulate, which means you have to isolate people who are sick away from the rest of the population. Otherwise, you can't provide services like the hospital example I just gave. Um, but it has to also be very aware, tracking the population's uh, population threats and also knowing where the doctors and nurses are and are not. Um, the other two elements of resilience are integration. That you have to work across sectors. We know, for example, that the customs sector in uh, customs agency in, in Liberia took forever, weeks and weeks, to approve the release of shipments of personal protective equipment from the national ports, uh, delaying you know life-saving uh, uh, inputs to the health workforce um, because of a lack of communication with the Ministry of Health and a poor understanding of the gravity of the situation. And then finally. Uh, I think the other element of, of, of resilience uh, thinking and health system resilience is diversity. Um, one thing, and what we mean by that simply is that a health system has to be able to care of problems across the spectrum. 
and unfortunately, Liberia's system before the Ebola epidemic, and still unfortunately today, is very geared to two or three diseases, you know, malaria, uh, HIV, uh, TB potentially. Uh, and, and so the population doesn't really see it as a health system. They see it as a malaria care system. Um, and without that, that basic uh, breadth of provision uh, and, and a, a reasonable scope of services, uh, people really, really don't think the system is there for them and is able to help them. Okay, so um, looking forward, I mean, in the article, you um, go on to talk about a resilience index, which is um, a way of measuring the health system's capacity ahead of a crisis. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you're proposing? And then perhaps you could tell us about how that might apply, for example, to Liberia. Yeah, so I think there's lots of ways for us to understand resilience in hindsight. Uh, in you know, in Liberia, uh, since the Ebola crisis, there have been a number of articles and certainly many, many more newspaper uh, headlines uh, about the failures and 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 sort of uh, you know, in retrospect, talking about, for example, the, the number of babies and mothers are going to die or did die as a result of Ebola. So there's because regular health services failed. So I think we're, we're pretty good at diagnosing things uh, after the fact. What this resilience index tries to do is prospectively assess, is my health system ready for a shock? And by shock, I really don't mean just Ebola, because that's a very particular, uh, particular kind of threat. But we really mean any sudden uh, disruption uh, in, in, uh, in the functioning of the health system that could be, for example, as a result of a weather event, a huge flood or or a hurricane, um, anything that dramatically increases demands on the system and maybe even shifts those demands from a common area to, to something um, different. So a huge shock uh, for a health system. Every health system has to prepare for that because it could happen in, in, in London, as you just experienced uh, in the wake of the recent terrorist attacks. It certainly can happen here in, in the U.S. and in any country. So what we're proposing in this resilience index is that at any moment, a health system uh, needs to be able to sort of check off whether it's ready uh, on a number of characteristics. So, for example, is it aware? Do you know the population risks and, uh, and the health system capacity? Do you know your weak spots? For example, in Liberia, you know, where are the health workers? Where are the most trained health workers today? I'm not talking about last year, but really today, where are they? Many countries are struggling with outdated data systems, and they don't actually know what, who's in clinics. Um, and uh, part of awareness is also the ability to communicate. So who do the port authorities reach out to when new stocks of drugs come in? Who are the decision makers in the key sectors like education and, and, and transportation to work with the health sector? So awareness, I think, is, is one area. The other is diversity, uh, which we just spoke about, uh, the idea that you need to have a basic scope of health services available in primary care, not just to give the population confidence that some healthcare will be there no matter what's, what's wrong with them, but also because, um, frankly, unless the system is, uh, is uh, thinking broadly about healthcare as opposed to narrowly about malaria or some other disease, it's not going to spot an unusual presentation of an epidemic or an outbreak. You've got to have your suspicions up that something different may be coming in. And so the, this um, ability to make a differential diagnosis um, and, to, and to provide the, the right uh, uh, 
uh, service, no matter what the illness is important. Uh, quality of care is a, a big piece of that. We know people avoid services that provide terrible quality. So um, that, that's an essential piece of resilience. And then adequate financing is part of diversity as well. Do you have enough money in the system to be able to, to react? The other parts of the index are about, um, for example, self-regulation, being able to have a system to immediately separate people who are, for example, very infectious, or to, um, to you know, find the right setting for if this is maybe a different kind of a crisis, uh, uh, like a terrorist attack or, or a weather event, that there is, you know, sufficient acute care capacity and where are those people going to go so that they're, uh, so regular clinics can continue to provide regular services. Uh, and by the way, self-regulation doesn't mean you have to make this all happen yourself. For a small country like Liberia, it should be able to turn to neighbors and the international community. I should emphasize here that resilience doesn't mean complete independence. Um, it doesn't mean go it alone. We are interdependent as a world and countries um, should be able to reach out to, to others to assist. I, I think that's a key point. Um, integration is really important um, in, our, in, in this index in terms of coordinating with non-health actors, in terms of engaging citizens and communities. You know, one of the things we're actually proposing in, in here is a measure of a trust. Um, do, do communities trust the health system and the Ministry of Health ahead of crisis? So if they don't trust them in advance, it's very difficult to build that trust quickly and probably impossible. Uh, so that's, that's critical. Uh, and then um, uh, in integration, there is another uh, piece which is about uh, connecting public health with healthcare delivery. Often those two are separate silos in, in countries. And here we're learning, for example, that in Liberia, they didn't have public health specialists in the counties who, could, who, could, who understood what uh, case finding looks like or contact tracing. Those are uh, uh, important capacities to build into the health system. And then finally, a system in advance, health system needs to know whether it is really going to be able to adapt. And so a few things to, to note there, you know, is a health system able to shift resources very quickly if, uh, if a, a brand new need arises? Meaning, can it shift health workers overnight or within a few days from one part of the country to another? Can it shift money uh, so that a community group can be formed to find victims, for example? Um, another part of adaptiveness is uh, local decision making. How can the community quickly uh, inform the, the government of what's going on? And then uh, adaptiveness, of course, also relies on the ability to track uh, progress, uh, collect data, and evaluate performance quickly. And this actually did come to Liberia, but it was months and months into the epidemic where uh, finally, uh, you know, six or eight months after the first cases, Liberia was on an everyday basis finally able to just track the number of victims, how they were doing, where they were coming from. I mean, this is just basic, basic uh, intelligence that every health system needs to have the capacity for. Okay, so taking that as a whole picture, I mean, it's quite comprehensive and it's quite challenging even for a relatively developed health system such as the one we have in the UK to achieve all of those things. Um, how can some of the health systems which are starting from a much um, with a much lower baseline of resilience, how can they achieve a lot of these things? Where is that investment coming from? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, I think probably the crux of the matter in some ways, I don't think too many people disagree with, with the concepts that I've just outlined uh, here. I think a, a big question is um, who's going to fund it? Uh, how quickly can we fund it? But, but a related issue too is um, how, do we, how do we make it happen? Implementation is hard even if the money is there. Um, so I think you know, this will depend on the country. You mentioned the UK. There obviously are going to be domestic resources to, to think about and to think about maybe reallocating if needed. Um, in a country like Liberia, where 80% or more of the money spent in the health system is coming from donors, this is one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, it's, it, it's, and, and their economy has been uh, also uh, devastated by Ebola. Uh, it's not possible for them to be able to fund these capacities today. Um, they do need to be funding as much as they can because having, uh, you know, skin in the game, as we say, is absolutely critical. The ownership of this agenda needs to be local. Um, but I do think it's a, it's a global responsibility. Uh, we've long said that diseases don't have borders. Ebola aptly demonstrated that. Uh, and so I think that the question is, you know, how can the region, um, say West Africa, come together to pool and, and make best use of resources, for example, does every country need its own, you know, uh, integrated lab? Uh, probably not. It's possible to have a regional facility, uh, perhaps. Um, but, but, you know, the country does need to build what we call slow variables, health workers, and, and pay them on time. And, and donors have to commit to working with that country to, to have those in place. Um, so those slow variables are critical, but investment in the, in the quick variables, things like personal protective equipment, vaccines, medications, uh, those, can, those can definitely be the province of the international community, and I think need to be. And this is what others have been recommending as well, having a, a crisis uh, fund, um, maybe managed by the WHO. Um, I think certainly the bilateral donors like the U.S. government, um, other governments that, that have long partnered with Liberia, are thinking themselves about how to do this. But, but the, the point is that we have to be organized. And, and an incredibly important piece is that we have to be organized in advance of crisis. I think the issue here is that while um, the other, I think maybe just point to mention is that, um, you know, I think while a lot of uh, emphasis has been, has been placed on the international community getting its act together and, and fixing the, the global response to crises, um, this article and the work on health system resilience really shines the light on national health systems. And the fact is they are the first line of defense against epidemics and other health shocks. The international community by definition always comes in later and second. And so if we don't get that first uh, line of defense right, uh, we, are going to be, uh, we are going to be sacrificing lives and, and uh, delaying uh, what could be an effective uh, response. Dr. Margaret Crick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And that article, Building Resilient Health Systems, a proposal for a resilience index, is now available on bmj.com. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and don't want to miss out, subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can rate and review us, which really helps others to find the podcast as well. And let us know what you want to hear about. And if you want to hear more like this, then you can find our full back catalogue for free on SoundCloud. Just search for BMJ Talk Medicine.